Chapter 54 Even if you've seen it a thousand times before, the New York City skyline with the Statue of Liberty jutting out of the bay at the foot of Manhattan are landmarks that never cease to provoke our wonderment and admiration. As the airplane approaches the airport, I see the city out of the airplane's window and spot the golden torch held on high by Lady Liberty, shimmering in the sunlight. New York City is a goddess who's been offering sustenance to the world's immigrants for over two centuries. She's provided food, shelter, and encouragement to millions of pilgrims who have arrived on these shores in search of freedom and opportunity. Many fell in love with her and stayed. Others moved on to settle in communities across the country. Each man, woman, and child received a little bit of her unfathomable love. I love New York, this mother city. She's sacred to me. Coming back here is always inspiring. Nevertheless, I feel like the prodigal son who never really comes home. The stabbing fear grips my gut as soon as the plane touches down, its wheels screeching painfully when their rubber hits the runway. Why the trepidation? Why do I feel at home and yet so far away at the same time? How can I be so at peace here and at war or somewhere else all at once? Some philosophers said the contradictions are still points where opposites converge. My life, with all my doubts, self-destructive tendencies, and self-awareness, is in need of constant realignment. Otherwise, I lose my sense of being completely alive. So why all the turbulence, both inside and out? Why the continuous questioning? I feel I am one with this world, and the world is at war with itself. I am conflicted, too, because I want to make this world a better place and make myself feel useful. I have to live with the contradictions. As the airplane taxis toward our gate, I come to an agreement with myself. I won't give up fighting for peace, even if that means going to war. That will be my point where the opposites converge, my contradiction. I glance over at Lev and see him also thinking about the past and the future trying to put all his own contradictions in some order as he embarks on his American journey. Our eyes meet, and I know that just like me, he's thinking about Vasya, Marina, and their child. I now feel responsible for their fate. I have implicated myself morally and emotionally into their lives. Helping them means making the world a better place. Helping them makes me feel worthwhile. I'm not stopping now. I'm in all the way. And because of me, Louisa is in as well. That is the most worrisome part of the equation. We exit customs at the airport. Lev's niece, Masha, is waiting for us. She is a tall woman with short brown hair and piercing blue eyes. At the sight of Lev, she bursts into tears, taking him into her arms for a long, deep, wordless hug. Louisa and I turn away to give them some privacy in the middle of all the other families welcoming loved ones. Before we go away, I glance back at Lev, where decades of frustration, longing, and concern are chiseled into his contorted face. Lev grabs me by my shoulder, turns me to face him, and looks into my eyes with gratitude. He cannot hold back his tears. We agree to meet in the Washington, D.C. offices of Nicholas's law firm as soon as that hard-to-get appointment can be arranged. Welcome to your new home, Lev, I say. I love you both very much, Lev says, kissing me on my lips, his voice still wavering with emotion. Masha embraces and thanks both of us. Then she and Lev turn and walk off, embarking on a new chapter in their lives. Chapter 55 
Outside the airport, we grab a taxi back to my place in the Bronx, took off all our clothes and lounged in a hot bubble bath together. For three days, we never put a stitch of clothing back on. I remember it now as a timeless passage that melded into a fog of continuous lovemaking, sushi meals delivered from Riverdale's Palace of Tokyo Restaurant, and classic movies that we watched day and night on TV. I refused to get dressed or to answer the phone. Then late one night, the telephone literally rang off the hook. When I finally picked it up, I heard Nicholas's warm voice calling from D.C., saying he had set up the appointment in two weeks' time to review Lev's immigration status. I called Masha, who said she would drive Lev down to D.C. for the meeting. Luisa and I would catch the Akala at Penn Station. Two weeks became two months as life intervened, forcing us to reschedule that meeting again and again until the four of us finally got to Washington and into Nicholas's office. Those first eight weeks of freedom had transformed Lev. He walked in with Masha looking healthy, groomed, and scrubbed, wearing tight-fitting denims with a barber jacket. He could have passed for a college professor. The gauntness had been replaced by a well-nourished rosiness. Most importantly, Lev was smiling nonstop. His good humor required an effort to get used to. Louisa couldn't take her eyes off him, making funny faces at him and giggling when he made faces back at her. We are in the reception area at Hartman, Cooper, and Stein on the seventh floor of the Tower Building at 1401 K Street. Built in 1929, it is one of the first Art Deco structures in D.C. One entire wall of the lobby is a floor-to-ceiling image of Tamara de Lampica's 1931 masterpiece, Woman with Dove, as if to reinforce the Art Deco theme of the place's architecture. Lev is staring at the Dolumpika image as he sips the steaming espresso that the receptionist has served him. Masha, Luisa, and I chat about Lev's new life with her family. Nicholas comes out to greet us, shakes Lev's hand with both his hands, and says with a wide smile on his face, Lev, I'm thrilled to see you here today. Please excuse all the delays in our getting together. Thank you, Nicholas, for everything, Lev says. Feeling free is the strangest thing. I'm still getting used to it. We are escorted into an elegant conference room with big windows. When we are seated in the high-backed leather chairs around an oval table, Lev speaks first. Thank you again for what you, Luke, and Louisa did for me. I wouldn't be here without all your efforts. You're very welcome, Lev, says Nicholas. We've always been great admirers of yours and of Vasily Verbitsky and of all the other dissidents. I hated the Cold War. Our idea was to help people restart democracy in Russia so we could all live in peace. We all know democracy requires democratic laws and democratic institutions. People needed to be trained to foster everything that Russia was lacking. That kind of mentoring, as you know, is a beloved project of our law firm. But after a lot of effort by people like Luke, we've given up on that strategy. It didn't work. Sadly, no, says Lev. The psychological impact of the prison system is still very much alive with our people. You can't be free if you don't have a law-abiding society. The government must also obey the law. Otherwise, there's anarchy. The collapse of the USSR was a golden opportunity for security services to take control of our country. Which they did, definitely. For that reason, says Nicholas, we are now helping dissidents like you to get out because your lives are in as much danger these days as during the Brezhnev or Andropov eras. Maybe even more so. Which brings me to the next step, Lev. 
Nicholas looked straight into Lev's eyes. Lev, how can we get Vasya out of the prison or the asylum, wherever he's still incarcerated? We can't. What do you mean? Only Tractor can do it. Who's Tractor? The man who expelled Luke and gave orders for them to torture me while I was being interrogated. They call him Tractor because during those interrogations, he would beat you up so badly you'd feel as if a tractor had run you over. After a session with Tractor, you're an invalid, either physically or mentally. I was lucky to escape with just a little finger problem. Smiling, Lev holds up his right hand to show us his scarred and disfigured index finger. Tractor thought I could give them more valuable information, so he let me keep breathing. Luke got a taste of Tractor as well. Who is he, I asked. His real name is Igor Kravtsov. He's a KGB colonel. You just don't want to mess with him. Where is he now? I've heard from some Russians in Brighton Beach that Kravtsov lives in Manhattan now. What? Nicholas and I say simultaneously. How is that possible, says Louisa, as shocked as we are. Some of Kravtsov's old colleagues have also been spotted here. They're in London, too, and Hong Kong, I hear. In fact, they show up wherever big money is. The KGB, the German Stasi, the Romanian Securitat, Polish SB, or the Bulgarian DS. They have repackaged themselves. They call themselves businessmen nowadays. Believe it or not, everyone in the world is willing to do business with them. They are more powerful now than ever before. They're like feudal kings that make their own laws. Do you think they really care about democratic ideas, Nicholas? How do you know about this, I ask. Vazia told me, says Lev. He knew about everything that was going on. He had researched it. He knew people high up. The first thing he was going to do when he got to Europe was write a book exposing the bullshit with the facts. You know, name names. Tell the real story. These businessmen are looting us in broad daylight. What kind of businesses, asked Nicholas. They sell gold, diamonds, oil, gas, liquid gas, military hardware, everything. You name it, they sell it. All the natural resources of our mother Russia are on sale. They will launder your money and at the same time recruit you for their dirty work if they can. They have government protection because they buy politicians. So they think they're immune here as well? Of course, says Lev with a wave of his hand. Let's find Kravtsov, I say, and convince him to release Vasily. Convince Tractor. That's crazy, Lev replies. Maybe so, I say. But this is America, where we don't bow to tyrants, where there are laws against the kind of trafficking you're describing. If not you and me, Lev, who's going to stand up for Vasya? Nicholas jumps in. I don't want anybody going after anyone without speaking to the authorities first. Is that clear? We need to bring in the FBI on this. Go after Tractor, says Lev. No way. Why not? You don't know these people, Nicholas. You don't know what they're capable of, especially Tractor. He would eat your FBI for breakfast. He's already eliminated almost all his competition. L let me tell you a story. A true story about Tractor that Vasily told me. We all sit in silent awe as Lev begins. There was a professor, Professor Stoyanov, a Bulgarian dissident who was living in the States. He was in Massachusetts. He taught political science in Boston at prestigious schools. Through his contacts, Stoyanov got hold of all the archives of dissidents from the Eastern Bloc countries, including the ones in Soviet prisons. 
All the records of the fake crimes that dissidents were accused of and the real crimes committed against them by KGB, Stasi, Securitet, etc. He had proof of this modern-day gulag archipelago for today's political prisoners, mostly human rights activists. But even more interesting, Stoyanov got his hands on official records of businesses that the oligarchs had created as sleeper cells for the KGB. Stoyanov had made a deal with an important American magazine to publish an article about everything he knew, based on the evidence he had put together. He was waiting for one last envelope containing essential documents coming from his friend Mykola Chichniak, a Ukrainian novelist who had spent 20 years between Moscow's Lubyanka and Matroskaya Tishina prisons. The day that Chichniak's envelope was going to be delivered to Stoyanov's nice suburban home, a man on a motorcycle caught up with the postman's truck on an empty street and shot the postman between the eyes. Then the motorcyclist put on the postman's uniform and switched out the envelope addressed to Stoyanov for another one that had a bomb in it. The assassin personally delivered the letter bomb to the professor. When it exploded, it not only instantly killed Stoyanov but also set his house on fire. As the postman's van drove away with the assassin at the wheel, the professor's place was consumed in flames, destroying all his research. The story doesn't end there. A few miles away as the assassin was about to get back on his motorcycle, a black Mercedes-Benz appeared out of nowhere. It plowed into the motorcycle and killed Assassin 1. When Assassin 2 stepped out of the Mercedes to make sure Assassin 1 was dead, Assassin 3 sped by in a BMW and shot Assassin 2 through the heart with one bullet. The story of Assassin 3 ended there because he disappeared, knowing very well he was going to get killed by his boss. The boss of this criminal network was Valentina Sadikova, a 25-year KGB veteran and a real spy master. She was known by her nickname Instrumentalchik. She had been planted many years ago as a sleeper cell. She was activated through a KGB program called Code 28. Sadikova had a front company, a flower shop on a cobblestone street in Greenwich Village. The following day, according to eyewitness accounts in the flower shop, no one heard anything unusual. One customer saw a tiny hole appear in the front door, and then Valentina Sedakova dropped to the floor like a sack of wet dirt, a bullet hole where her right eye had been. Some say it was the Assassin Three who killed his own boss. And behind all these murders was Tractor. He had carried out a false flag operation inside the KGB to take over all the money-making operations. So now you have both Tractor and a rogue expert assassin on the loose. Who wants to deal with them? No one. We never heard those types of stories here, says Nicholas. Of course, says Lev. All you hear in America is Gorbachev, Gorbachev, or Gorby, right? The supposed new savior of Russia? It's disgusting. Lev's voice is trembling with distaste. There's some kind of Gorbamania here, I say. Well, you have to know the truth. He did everything in his power to save the USSR so he could save his dictatorship. However, the KGB outmaneuvered him. That's why he's so bitter. All of this sounds more like a detective novel than reality, says Louisa. I wish it were fiction, Lev says. But believe me, it's real. A few moments of heavy silence fill the room. But we have to help Vasya, I say. We can't give up on him, can we? Lev, are you with us or not? I would like to take some fresh air, says Lev, if you don't mind. Yes, says Nicholas. Good idea. Let's get some lunch and get back together this afternoon. Chapter 56 
Masha, Lev, Louisa, and I walked down K Street toward a French restaurant a couple of blocks away that Nicholas had recommended. Lev silently smoked a cigarette as he walked along, lost in his own thoughts. Louisa pulled me aside on the sidewalk. You're too harsh on him, she says softly. I'm too harsh on him? I'm trying to figure out how to help Vasya. But Lev's still getting adjusted to life here. There's a lot on his mind. There's so much to sort out. I just want to do something while we still have time, I explain. Nicholas is getting Marina and Vasily's child out so that the KGB doesn't get a chance to blackmail him with that, too. Now we need to somehow convince this tractor character to cooperate with us. I understand, my love, says Louisa. But Lev may not be ready to make any more sacrifices. He wants to enjoy his newfound freedom. Okay, you're probably right. You have to give him more time. We had a light lunch and chatted about everything except Vasya, everyone avoiding the subject diplomatically. The meeting that afternoon with Nicholas focused only on Lev's immigration process and the various steps he needed to take on the road to becoming a bona fide U.S. citizen. Nothing else was said about Vasya, but I couldn't stop thinking about him or Tractor. We bid Nicholas goodbye and left the offices of Hartman, Cooper, and Stein that afternoon. Once we were back on the street, Lev told us there were some Washington sites that he had only read about in books and always wanted to see with his own eyes. Let's take a walk, says Louisa. We strolled toward the Capitol, went down the National Mall past the Washington Monument, encircled by American flags and elm trees. As we walk alongside the reflecting pool, Lev becomes more animated, pointing out the Jefferson Memorial in the distance and singing the praises of the great man who authored the Declaration of Independence. You remember what Jefferson said, Luke, says Lev. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. At the end of the mall, we reached the Lincoln Memorial. Lev stopped and looked up at its monumental columns and white facade, smiling like a kid in a candy store. He almost ran up the broad stone stairs of that temple of democracy and disappeared inside the memorial's great hall. Masha, Louisa, and I followed him up the stairs, but we lingered outside, allowing Lev his private time to gaze up at the enormous seated sculpture of our 16th president and reread Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg that's engraved in stone. We waited outside the memorial at the top of the steps, enjoying the cool evening air and the impressive view of the Capitol in the distance, now glimmering with lights. Finally, Lev emerged. He looked rejuvenated, his eyes sparkling, a big smile on his face, a spark in his step. He walked up to us, repeating again and again Lincoln's famous words, that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The four of us stood close together, silently recognizing this magic moment. Friends, says Lev finally, I apologize for my moment of weakness back at Nicholas's office. Of course I'm gonna do everything necessary to help Vasya. I looked at Louisa with a sigh of relief and took Lev into my arms in a big bear hug. Louisa and Masha joined in, the four of us now arm in arm at the top of the Link Memorial, laughing and crying together, our embrace uniting our destinies for better or for worse. I will never be able to thank you enough, says Lev. We're not finished yet, Lev, I say. There's more work to do. I am with you, says Lev firmly. But how will it all end? What's the next chapter of my Russian-American story?